de Mad Max où nous regardons Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome une minute à la fois. Je suis Rick. Je suis Julia. Et aujourd'hui, nous parlons de la minute 85, which begins with DJ Skyfish and MC Anna Goanna rocking the turntable, and it ends with the cinematic equivalent of four years of foreign language instruction at my high school, which you all heard. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> You did not prepare me for that. I know. Came out of left field a little bit there, and it probably sounded awful. Okay, you know in any 80s movie where they bring in someone to play a German or a Russian or anything like that? For instance, the show Glow on Netflix, where you have Alison Brie playing a Russian caricature. I don't even remember what that character's name is. All I can remember is this awful Russian accent she does, and I can't help but think that me speaking French is more or less the awful Russian accent equivalent to French people. Well, yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> no amount of American public education can make you sound fluent. Not high school level, certainly not. Nope. And not using Google Translate. When I was taking French in high school, we didn't have Google Translate. We had websites dedicated to foreign language translation. And how do you know that? Because I used them. Mm-hmm. Instead of learning French. Well, there's no amount of online translating you can use that would let you pass a verbal exam. Did you pass a verbal exam? I passed all my verbal exams. I was in the French Honor Society. Oh my gosh. I know, that makes it sound worse, doesn't it? A little bit. Makes it sound like you cheated to get there, but... You call it cheating. I call it a creative use of resources. Okay. If they never explicitly say I can't, then I will. Oh dear me. Why do you think I've been coming down on the side of Max being able to use the whistle this whole time? <laughs> of course, I say that like we're just barely getting out of the Thunderdome, which is not the case. We are so far beyond Thunderdome at this point. Roll credits. Yep. This minute starts off with Mr. Skyfish reaching up and untying Gecko's Sonic from the string that holds it in place on the walking stick. And he sets it down onto this Victrola record player type thing and the cloud of dust that flies off of this record is worrying because I don't know if it's from the record or from the record player. That was my question too. If it came off the record, I would expect it to come off the record. The record just took a walkabout through the desert. So of course it's covered in dust. Mm -hmm. But the way that the puff happens, it could have come off of the turntable itself, which led me to the question, if the master has any records that he plays on a regular basis? Does he actually use this thing? It very well could be that when the train was in Underworld, this record player was maybe hooked up to a PA system, and we had a sort of Shawshank Redemption situation where one of the people, maybe Pig Killer, would sneak into the caboose and he would put a record on that Master wouldn't necessarily play for the general public and everyone would have a good laugh about it. I like that idea. The idea of spreading a little culture 
Which is exactly why in Shawshank Redemption it was such a big deal. Well, that and he broke into the warden's office. Seeing Master's quarters now and how full of personality they are, this is a side of Master that we've never seen before. All of our interactions with him before have been his quote-unquote business persona. Yeah. This is how he behaves at work. But we've never seen him in private time when Mm. he is not on Blaster's back. Once he goes home, he is done. And now we're getting this insight into where he lives. Although it's hard to say whether or not Master is ever really off the clock. Like, he lives at work, more or less. Like, he has an office, he has a caboose, he has the wasteland equivalent of a private bathroom. But even when you have your own office, a private bathroom, you're still on the clock. You're still on the job. An assistant can come and rap on the door. Master, we've got a problem. The pigs are out again. (laughs) What surprises me about everything that we see here is how dusty it is. Like, all of those glasses that are set up along the wall next to the record player, caked in dust. Yeah. Two things come to mind. One, they don't have cleaning products anymore. Right. And they also don't have the convenience of a washing machine, which means clean cloth might also be a bit hard to come by. Not that it doesn't exist. I'm sure it does. But cleaning cloth is a bit more of a process without a washing machine. Especially if you don't have a reliable source of renewing clean water. Yes. If you need to clean something, oftentimes you need to use clean water first. Right. And priorities. Drinking the clean water is more important than cleaning cloth or cleaning ornamental objects. Yeah. Second, it also occurs to me, we've been thinking of this caboose as master's living quarters. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's a storage unit. Yeah, maybe it was more of a storeroom where he put the knickknacks that he's been collecting over time. Maybe he's been putting them in there just because, I mean, we all have junk drawers closets we just throw things into Mm -hmm. we fight constantly to keep our studio from being that place in our house where we just dump things and that's really hard to do yeah especially because part of the room is blocked off by just a giant drapery and we can put things behind the drapery and it means that we very seldom see those things and so there's just a pile of things (laughs) yes there is and they are back there getting dusty And we no longer really pay attention to them or care about them. Mm. That may be the case here. To say nothing of the attic. Oh, convinced addicts are the devil. (laughs) They're just bad. (laughs) It's just a bad idea. Hey, look at these things that we never use anymore. Instead of getting rid of them, let's just put them in the most inconvenient place in the house possible. Not a great plan. No. So this may be... Master's attic. Which would explain why he's packing things up into his little bag in Friday's Minute. Yes. Picking out those select things that he thinks he's going to need. Right. Now, imagine if we had to leave the house and say we had one hour's notice to pack our things and leave. Everything else is going to get left behind, but we have an hour to pack and go. There are things in the attic that I would go get. Mostly things, you know, we have 
boxes full of childhood things, there are some objects in there that I would want. Yeah. If I knew I was never coming back, I would take them. So I would do the same thing. I would go into the storage area and pick out the few select things that knowing I'm never coming back, I would want. Mm. That's a tricky call, being told you only have an hour. I guess in that instance, I'd be glad that we have so many luggage pieces that we haven't culled to right. be able to make sure that... <laughs> You know, we have food, we have clothes, we have supplies. Mm -hmm. We've done a pretty good job of packing up the garage with all of our stuff in bins that are easy to get to, but the attic is still a problem. It is. And think, if we had an hour to pack up anything we wanted, since we've moved stuff from the attic to the garage... It'd be so much easier. Yeah. Just, okay, this entire thing's going in the back, on the back, all the camping supplies, all the childhood mementos, coming with. It'd be so much easier. Yeah, Master's not going to get that. No, no. Everything he wants to hold on to has to fit inside that bag, and everything else is getting left behind. Yes. We were talking about a record player. (laughs) We were. (laughs) Got sidetracked. Yeah, because of dust. Speaking of things not working right because of dust, I went online to just dig around a little bit about the issue with vinyl records, staying clean, playing properly. I'm not a vinyl guy. I'm not crazy about records. I don't like the idea of having to store, maintain, and listen to them. It's far too complicated for me. Much prefer digital. It's just how I am. I found a video... Special thanks to Snazzy Labs on YouTube, where they listed off seven tips and recommended tasks for people who have a vinyl collection. So first and foremost, you need to store the records vertically. They should never be stacked flat, which is something that Gecko never did. That record was strung up more or less vertically Mm -hmm. the entire time, so he gets points there. They also mention that records should be stored in an inner sleeve that either reduces or is anti-static. So every time you buy vinyl, you get the cardboard outer case that it slides into, and then oftentimes you'll have an inner sleeve that helps keep it clean. And if it's just paper, well, it's not great because it generates static. So you can get like special anti-static sleeves. None of that is happening in the post-apocalypse. So no points there. We're one in two at this point. Although nothing is rubbing against it to generate static electricity. That's a good point. You could argue that being strung up between two pieces of wood, it is very separate from conductive forces. Yes, it's exposed and isolated at the same time. But there's no sleeve on it, so no points for rule number two. Rule number three is that you should only ever touch the edges or the center where the label is. You need to keep your hands off of the ridges, which Skyfish slaps his hand right over all those ridges. So boo on you, sir. But when they're spinning the record on the stick earlier in the movie, they're gripping the very edge and spinning it that way. Mm-hmm, they are. So they're not putting their grubby hands all over the middle. So you could argue two out of three ain't bad. Fourth rule of vinyl maintenance is to keep the face of the record clear of dust. And I think this is where they really fall down. Oh, yeah. Negative points (laughs) for that one. Carrying that stick through a desert where there's probably wind and dust and particles flying through the air at all times. Being exposed to the elements is not good. Rule number five is actually very much related to rule number four. Where rule number four was keep the record clear of dust, rule number five is to keep the stylus, the little needle-like thing, on the player itself. You got to keep that clean as well. 
which is not so much Gecko or Skyfish's fault. That's more Master's fault for not properly maintaining his Victrola. But considering that Master lived in a literal pigsty, context would dictate that he would get a pass on that one. Rule number six that they gave, I felt related a lot to rule number two. They just say to reduce or eliminate static as much as possible. Apparently there are these little snake oil type doohickeys that you pull a lever and point it at the record and it eliminates the static on the record. And I wouldn't believe it if I didn't see them demonstrate it in the video, but it still looks ridiculous that you can just point something at the record, pull a lever on it, and the record stops being all staticky. The seventh rule of maintenance and care for your vinyl records is that you should wet clean them regularly, meaning every 50 plays or so which is something that I'm sure has not happened for this record since the plane crash. There's no way that they have properly cleaned or maintained this record. So anyone who's a vinyl enthusiast would look at this record and be like, no, that's not a thing. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> and even if it were possible for a record in this condition and the stylus in that condition to work at all there's no way that it would make sound that you could actually understand what it was trying to say if it could make sound it would be all garbled and gross it would probably sound more like one of those old edison wax cylinders than anything mm -hmm. that resembles the audio that you'd get from an actual vinyl record of course as they first start out, they don't even try listening to it properly because they've never seen a gramophone before. These kids these days, they don't know how any of the old stuff works. And it's ridiculous because he just sits there and he spins it with his finger and they start doing their Delta Fox X-ray thing. Mr. Skyfish says Gecko got it straight before they start doing the Delta Fox X-ray thing. And I am particularly glad that he did so because Gecko got credit for being right about the Sonic. Mm -hmm. I also really appreciate that Anna was there to see it. And if you've only ever seen the movie, then it doesn't really mean much that Anna is there to see that Gecko was right. But if you've read the screenplay and you know Gecko's storyline that got cut, it's nice that Anna, who was paired with Gecko, got to see that he was right. Yeah. And that he gets credit for being right. Nice little shout out at the end of the movie after he suddenly and inexplicably disappeared from the film. Yeah. So you were telling me about Delta Fox X-Ray the other day. I was. And I can't remember why neither of us could find anything about DFX the previous time that it came up weeks ago. But I Googled it again. This time I figured it was a three letter code like an airport code. Yeah. So I just Googled DFX airport code and I found out that it's the IATA code, which is the International Air Transport Association code for Lachlan Air Force Base in Texas. So like Boston is BOS. Yeah. That's the code for Lachlan Air Force Base. Well, that just raises more questions. It really does. And I cannot imagine that they meant to use the airport code for... An Air Force base in Texas. Yeah. Because it's just too far away. If they were really trying to raise the tower on the radio and they crashed in Australia, there's no way they were actually trying to talk to the tower in Texas. Huh. I mean, you can go from Texas to Australia on direct flights, I believe. So that plane could have been coming to Texas. And 
in the condition the world was in, it's plausible that they could have been coming specifically to an Air Force base. Because if any airports have survived this, Air Force base is probably pretty high up on that list in likelihood. But they were just too far away. So I don't think it was on purpose. I think it's just a coincidence. So as they're doing their little chant thing, we see Max and Savannah passing the window and they stop and notice Skyfish and Anna. And I have to wonder... This little quiet interlude that we get between the excitement of escaping Barter Town and everything blowing up and all of that. And then we get this minute of relative calm and quiet. And it's more than a minute. Like, we started this last Friday. We're going to keep going with this moment until Wednesday. What do we think of this little lull in the action? Do we like it? I like the small things that happen. I like the bits. I like the record player. And the French. I like the putting things in the bag and then the kids taking them out of the bag. I like the little things that happen. Gives humanity to this group of kids. And we get to see how they're interacting with this wider world, which is fascinating. As far as the rise, fall, rise in the action of this overall climax, like once they get back to Bartertown, this is the end of the movie now. Yeah. This is the final action sequence and right in the middle of it we've got this lull not sure how i feel about that it might have been the intention of george miller to separate the shenanigans of underworld from the actual out in the wasteland chase yeah to divide the two almost like what he did in road warrior where the rig smashed through the raiders and got out onto the road and then we had i think just a minute maybe a minute and a half of just very quiet following the rig along like he splits up his action sequences with these little lulls and interludes i feel like it's there so that we can catch our breath as a viewer that's true and i do like to catch my breath as a viewer i don't like extended action sequences this one maybe could have been tightened up a little bit not sure it does feel odd though yeah yeah what do you think of it Hmm. well i don't hate it i think it is a really good dividing line between all of the underworld stuff barter town exploding and then the fleet rolling out i think what takes away from it for me at least is how it's more or less a short montage of the kids just fooling around and doing kid stuff like we started it off with max and savannah going to the front of the truck and being like what's the plan well there's no plan and then oh boy but then we had the bag shenanigans and the record player shenanigans and i'm like ah, i guess it's all right it's inoffensive to me pretty neutral I'm appreciating the utility, even if I'm not crazy about the content. And to say that I'm not crazy about the content, I don't want to insinuate that I don't like it. It's not ruining it for me. I think just an indifference Mm -hmm. is where I'm at, which is more or less why I'm asking the question. How should I feel about this? (laughs) So Max leaps into teaching mode. He reaches his arm through the window that he's sitting at and shows Skyfish, okay, here's the crank on the side of the thing. I want you to turn that. So Skyfish gets that turning. The record starts to spin and then Max takes the stylus and he puts it down on the record. And the kids are surprised when they suddenly hear a voice come out of this thing. This moment from Max... Holy cow. It is so reminiscent of Road Warrior. Even more so than it hadn't dawned on me before with the crank, turning the crank 
to make the sound happen. And his little teaching moment reminiscent of that moment with the feral child where he teaches him to use the music box. This is a side of Max that we don't get to see a lot. The side that is patient and kind to children. Reluctantly paternal. Yes, reluctantly paternal. And we get to see it here in both times, in both situations. The expression on his face is very neutral. And I noticed also that Savannah right next to him, her face is completely neutral too. I think she has similar feelings about parenthood that Max does. Kind of neutral, which is kind of an awkward thing to say considering that she just lost her child. But this scene where the kids are learning how to use a record player and learning French doesn't really seem to do anything for her or Max. They're both just watching. As I mentioned before, Anna and Skyfish are surprised when this thing starts talking, and I'm not sure if they're more surprised by the noise that it makes or the fact that it's not any sort of long-distance communication catalyst. They've spent so long imagining that if they spun this, they'd be able to connect with someone remotely, as if they were using a radio. And I have to wonder if there's a little disappointment there. It's like when you were a kid and you get to go into one of those niche little toy stores and you realize that they've got nothing but wooden blocks and Playmobil. <laughs> like you go in there expecting action figures and you get a radio flyer. I'm really not sure what they expected. They've never witnessed what a radio could actually do, that you can actually talk to people over a distance. So I don't think that that's what they're expecting to happen. I'm really not sure what they are expecting to happen, but nothing that they understand. I don't think they know what they're expecting to happen. Yeah. The only person that really had any sort of expectation died before they got to Underworld. I'm not sure Gecko had any real expectation. I'm sure Did he, he had a hope. I'm sure he had some sort of assumption the problem is that these are concepts that were never introduced to them. They don't know the concept of a radio where you can talk to people over a distance. Well, so they don't know that somebody could actually respond if you talk into a radio. Which is why they would have to imagine a response. And I just have to wonder what their imagined thing would be. Curious thing the mind of a child is. That's just, they wouldn't even know to imagine that. They wouldn't understand that concept at all. Why would they imagine that somebody could talk to them well, when they, would, they don't even know that that could happen? Well, why would they imagine that if they spun the record just the right way that, you know, a magical pig thing would fly out of the sky and give them a stick. You know, kids are abstract with their expectations. Okay. I mean, I agree that kids are abstract with their expectations. That's exactly my point. Kids are abstract with their expectations. So why would their expectations be true? And we don't know what their expectation was. I just would imagine that Gecko, having had that Sonic, as he calls it, for so many years would expect that if he spins it and talks into his headset that someone would talk back. Because that's the whole point of his kit. Okay. Okay. It's like if someone gives you a box and they say, this box is for doing a task. You would always look at that box and be like, oh, that box is for doing a task. But nobody told him that this box is for a task. You he, he found a box 
and was like, I'm going to make this box do something. You really think that no one passed all of that stuff to him? No. Why would they? It doesn't work. Because... It's never going to work. They would pass it down to him because maybe the adult who went to the plane and tore all that stuff out, maybe they were doing like a Gilligan's Island type of thing where they were trying to fix the radio with coconut and palm leaves. And when that person died or took a leaving, they said, hey, Gecko, you like playing with this stuff. You've seen me do plenty with it. Go for it, buddy. I will accept that perhaps he was told by an adult who then took a leaving that this is what radios could do. That's always been my assumption, at least. My assumption was always that he saw the visual somewhere and he's just mimicking the visual (laughs) and that he has absolutely no idea why. Or what it does. Like he read it in a book that had picture diagrams, and even though he didn't understand any of the words, he at least saw the pictures. Yes. Well, that works off well enough. (laughs) Yeah. So this record starts up, and there is a voice on the record that says, Welcome, open your book at page one, and now repeat after me. And they start off with simple phrases like bonjour and où allez-vous and all that other stuff. One fun thing that I retained from taking four years of French in high school is that English is a mostly Germanic language, whereas French is a Romantic or Latin-based language, which means that there isn't a one-to-one translation going on from English to French and vice versa. Uh, Something that really disappointed me back in French 1 is that you're not dealing with a cipher on the back of a cereal box. It's not like a foreign language is a code that all you have to do is move the letters around and it'll be super easy to figure out. There's a lot of context and nuance involved. A good example of that, when they say, où allez-vous, and the vinyl record says, where are you going? That's not the exact translation as far as I know. When you say, où allez-vous, it basically says, where, où, go, Allez, vous, you. So basically, if you take the one-to-one translation of French to English, you say, ooh, where go you? You sound like Yoda. Or you sound like Master. Maybe English isn't his first language. Maybe that's why he speaks so oddly. Well, that was one of our long-held suppositions. All right. But as far as how a normal person would interpret the phrase, ou allez-vous, they would interpret it as, where are you going? Likewise, je vais chez moi is not, I am going home. It is literally, I go house me. (laughs) But thankfully, we have context and we have nuance because language can be complicated. Very much. Yeah. So with that little nugget of knowledge dropped, a nugget that I'm pretty sure most of the people listening already possessed, but hey, you know what? We grow together. So we're going to put a pin in our minute here. We're going to come back on Wednesday. We'll be spending a little bit more time with the language lesson, but we're quickly going to shift our focus to the fact that Most of Bartertown is actively chasing the train. So we're going to have some guards that show up. They're going to try and do some snatching. So Max is going to have to think fast, improvise, adapt in order to repel these attackers. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link 
like, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 85 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Over